This is the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 27. I'm your host, Dill, and today our guest is Robbie Condor. Robbie has quite the resume. He's a keyboardist, arranger, producer, and synthesizer programmer who's recorded or performed with an array of legendary artists such as Eric Clapton, Robert Streisand, Aretha Franklin, Billy Joel, and Whitney Houston, to name a few. He's toured with Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, and Carole King, to name a few, and he's had the distinct pleasure, or displeasure, of being made fun of by David Letterman when he filled in for Paul Schaefer on The Late Show. We met up at his home in Northeast Westchester, and our little chat went just like this. That said, you actually, you set up the first question, um, just a way to kind of dive right in, but on your website, and this is dated March 24th, 2014, um, I guess you had just recently done a, a lifetime achievement thing for Carol King yeah. for the Gershwin, uh, award. Um, and that was someone, you were the music director on it, uh, you worked with Steven Tyler, Leanne Rimes, Alicia Keys, Billy Joel, Will I Am. Well, now that was not the Gershwin Prize. That's you're conflating two things that happened. Okay. possibly the same year. Similar. Okay. The Steve Tyler, Leanne Rimes was uh, the Music Cares Person of the Year award that happened in LA uh, around the time of the Grammys. Okay. You know, the question that comes out of that is. You say in your news, says, ask me about Lady Gaga next time you see me. I know I've never seen you before. This is the first time we met, but is there a story about Lady Gaga that we need to hear? Um, I, I don't know that it's a story, uh, but, you know, she might have been, in some ways, the most, uh, well, I won't say the most famous, because there are people that have been famous for for decades longer than her she you know she was relatively newer than someone like Steven Tyler but maybe her it might be safe to say her star shone the brightest at that particular moment in time among all the people who were there Pink was there and you know like you said Billy Joel and whoever else uh, and she and her team were well aware of that she's got a big entourage and a big team and, and they like to control everything so it was just, I mean, honestly, it was it was funny because my job, uh, apart from being the band leader and, and dealing with that when it came time to rehearse, was, was, was laying the groundwork, was, was reaching out to all the artists, finding out what material they were going to do, what keys they were going to do, the mundane things, the logistical right, right. things like that. I was also trying to sell them on using uh, the producers of this event had this little small center stage. And they said, see if you could talk, they, they, this small round thing, we're going to do, try to do some things as this intimate little unplugged thing with maybe just a piano and another. So th- these are the kinds of things that I had to do in the weeks before the event. And um, talking with her people, I never actually spoke with her. Um, it was just funny, because only because it was... Uh, the demands were, it, it became something that I could really didn't deal with. I, at a certain point, I just said, well, you know what, you're going to I'm gonna put you, have to put you on with, and at this point, the actual heads of the event, because it was like, it was far beyond my purview to say that even though there were two grand pianos there, uh, um, she was going to need one that's white, and neither of our two pianos were white, you know, that kind of thing. So I was like, well, you know what, I'm not going to be the person that gets you your white piano. <laughs> Let me connect you with... So there was a lot of stuff like that. 
you know, everyone was going to get, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes rehearsal time on a, a two long, one, one or two long days before the event or maybe the day of or whatever. She needed two hours rehearsal time, you know. So, and again, it was like, you know what, this is, I'm going to have to put you on with, you know, the big <laughs> boss, you know. So that was Lady Gaga. Okay. You know. I mean, it's interesting. Let's, I, I definitely want to get into the minutiae of that. Yeah. Like, when you're a music director of an event like that, it's interesting to hear, like, the planning and the egos and the managing. So There's let's, let's definitely get into that. But before we do, why don't we, we'll kind of segue into that with your, your own personal story. So you're born, you're born in Budapest? Mm-hmm. Interesting. What, what, at what age did you come to the I States? I was just shy of two years old. Okay, so very young. Yeah, very young. So I don't remember it. Uh, I remember stories about it. And substantially, I just, I, we grew up as immigrants. So that's, that's what I do remember is just the childhood of, you know, everyone spoke Hungarian and, you know, like that. So did you move to Queens at a young age or New York uh, area? Or? The Bronx initially. Okay. Uh, and then I wound up in Queens by the time I was about eight and a half years old or so. And how did music come into your life? Um, we had a, a beat up piano in the basement. And the reason we did that was because maybe my family was the first among the Hungarian families to actually have a house big enough to have it. And it's one of the circle of friends, uh, you know, because the, the, the immigrant Hungarians, they all kind of clung, as immigrants mm-hmm. do, you know, we, they, they, they didn't speak English, they didn't, you know, my, my parents. Uh, one of them played the piano. So, and we had the house that you could kind of party at. <laughs> and that people could, so, so even though no one in our household played, there was, there was a piano down there. And as a four or five year old kid, that just became my toy. I mean, it was going to be, it's a toy for a kid anyway. Yeah, it's sure. a question of whether or not he remains interested after five minutes. And it became my favorite toy, and it became like they couldn't tear me away. And it was so I played for maybe a couple of years, a few years before I had lessons, and it was just and, and and the rest of it is the story you would hear from any musician. It's just you know the teacher comes and they say here do it, and you, you, you pretend you're reading the music, but really you're just doing it because you just heard the teacher do it. And you can do it. It's a natural, it's a knack, like uh-huh. like people who could play sports or something, you know. So you had the, the yeah, gift, to, yeah, you know, the good you know, ear for right, it, yeah, and all that, yeah. Um, were you bitten by, was it rock and roll or was it, you know, folk music or was well, it? Well, again, know? like any one of my generation would tell you, I'm 63 years old okay. now, right? So 1964, what am I? I'm nine years old, approximately. That's the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Anyone within a stone's throw of my age will tell you the, yeah. the, that that did it for them. Mom, dad, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I'm talking about if they're a bassoon player with the Philharmonic, they'll tell you that. If they're the drummer for whoever, you know, that's yeah. just... It's that's, funny. It's funny. I, I have heard that before. I've heard it before. From absolutely. I'm not surprised. Show. Absolutely you have. And it's, it's, you hear it so often you take advantage of it, but it's, it's just funny that what is it about, you know, in the context of that time where they... You know about those four guys on the Ed Sullivan show. It's just it was nothing you've ever seen before. Was it the tempo? Was it the rebellion or the? It's all good questions because it, I'm sure it's uh, parts of all those things. You know, but yeah, the Beatles. The, hype, the Beatles. You know? We now know. You know, we we know they're great, but I wonder if we even realize how great they were. Like, are they? They were great, and also they were of their time. You know, mm-hmm. when when Ed Sullivan came on the air, there weren't that many other things come. You know, you had like channels two, four, five, seven. Yeah. Nine, you had like that. You know, uh, you didn't have lots of other 
so it was really a lot of people convened. It was like having the Super Bowl come on, except it was every yeah. Sunday night. And so uh, so it, it, it had a lot to do with the fact that we all tuned in, whether we liked the Beatles, you know, cared about the Beatles right. or not, or cared who they were. I, I don't think I had heard of them when they came on. I don't think I was ready. I wasn't excited, like, oh, the Beatles are going to be on TV. I had yeah. no idea what that was. Um, and then maybe the fact that all these girls were screaming. You know, you're a kid. It's like, well, they're screaming. What are they all screaming about? Or, and I think that it'll take a hundred years to really know this, or is it that they were that friggin' good that no one else, had the Rolling Stones come on that night, that wouldn't have happened, or had the Dave, or all the other bands that came on yeah. in the coming months, you know, maybe that wouldn't happen, maybe it really was because of the genius that was Paul McCartney, John mm-hmm. Lennon, you know, like, that yeah. we, we, in a way, it sounds funny to say maybe we, maybe we underestimate them. But maybe we do. Like, maybe it, we haven't yet recognized Paul McCartney as being, you know, like Mozart. Maybe we just think of him as being, like, one of the great rock and rollers. Yeah, yeah. And maybe he's, like, head and shoulders beyond that or something. Um, I don't know. Yeah. You I, know? I, I, think, I think many people would argue for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Argument. Um, and I'm not even the, the Beatles fanatic that, that... I mean, some of my friends are, like, they could tell you every... You know, well, on the English release, it was this, and on the United States, they'll play, they'll finish a Beatles song and then begin with the first, you know, thing that that was the next thing on that album, you know, like that. So I'm not even that guy, but but for but that was it for sure, 1964. You know, did that lead you to? Um, I think in your bio it, it said something about you know being in basement bands and garage bands. Oh, but were yeah. you were you did you go? Rock and roll, or were you? I'm rock, rock, I'm rock and roll with my friends. I'm classical with my training. I'm. Uh, it was rock and roll. I played by ear, and uh, my family was not musical, so we didn't have like a record player at home. So for me, it was just what I was on the radio. And then maybe at some point, my dad dragged home some kind of record player that we jury rigged to like I don't know what plugged it into maybe the TV to make the sound or something. I forget what it was, but it was some half baked thing, and maybe he had a couple of like. 101 strings or you know these and I like those too you know Tijuana Brass so at the time when you had the exciting the stuff that we think of as being the revolutionary exciting stuff of the 60s you know at the same time you had Perry Como and mm-hmm. Nat King Cole and um, and as teenagers we weren't supposed to like that stuff but I secretly did you know what I mean yeah because um, it was there and it was great you know I mean, how do you argue with like a Nelson Riddle arrangement for, with Nat King Cole playing the piano and singing, or yeah, you know, that kind of thing? You know. So, at what point? I know I noticed you've got a bachelor's degree in music at a Manhattan School of College, or Manhattan, sorry, Manhattan School of Music, yeah, School of College. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point were you? You. That's a point where you're going to try to make it. Part of your career was there any pushback from a family? Absolutely, there was. Like, you should be a dentist. Or a yeah, lawyer. no, no, that's no, that's that's spot on. Um, that is what there was. That is what it was. And I was not a classical uh, music student, or even uh, again, there was it wasn't. I didn't know jack about classical music. But at a certain point, um, I just be. I was aware that okay, well, if I'm going to take this further, I would study. And if when when you study music, what is it that you study? I knew that I wasn't going to study the Rolling Stones. Although okay. these days, you, you could probably get a degree in stuff <laughs> for all I know. Uh, so yeah, and I actually, you know, out of high school, I went to college, but it was like not great college. It was not. It was the you know, I, it was just like some half baked. You know, I wasn't excited about it. Mm-hmm. 
and I struggled and I wanted to be a musician and my folks didn't want me to be and when you're younger you, you're very much influenced by what your family thinks you need to do and not do and then as I got a little older so after, after two years of college I said screw this I'm going to quit I'm going to get myself into a conservatory and they laughed at me they said you, how are you going to do that you don't know jack about it I, could, I mean I could barely read and write music I didn't play any classical so I did like the crash course. I, I, I literally, I, I started studying with a very serious teacher that was recommended to me. And I practiced, I don't know, eight, ten hours a day. And there was that, that crucible right. thing. Uh, and they didn't believe me. You know, my parents didn't believe me. And I was down in, down in the basement and I had I put cushions and things all around the piano so I could practice like at one in the morning and stuff. And, and, uh, and I got into Manhattan School of Music and I did that. You know, So that was my whole classical a year before school and four years of school, that was it. Okay. That's my did you end up with a degree there? Or yeah, a... I did. Okay. Yeah. I had to take some academic things too. Plus, I had two years of college prior to that. I went, it took me seven years to get through college. <laughs> took, uh, it's like a John Belushi like a modern uh, plan. That's right. <laughs> um, and what, what I, I saw in your bio also that you you know, became a sought-after studio musician. Did that, is that what kind of took off for you right away after school? Or well, it actually took off during school. During school. Yeah. At one point, I even remember, <laughs> I might have been in my junior or senior year, uh, doing a rock and roll tour with Carolyn Moss. And I just remember, it was out for like, you know, touring the States and Europe and stuff, playing in a rock and roll group. And, uh, you know, returning to class after <laughs> six weeks, seven weeks of absence, you know, and they're like, you know, some, like, guy with an Austrian accent, you know, it's like, Mr. Condor, where have you been? You know, it's like, well, actually, I've been, <laughs> I've been doing some uh, field study. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, no, I was very much working, and I would just, if I, if someone hired me for a session or something, so, yeah, it, it kind of started happening, you know. Now, at that time, did you, was that, you know, doing what you were doing was, I, I, I can imagine you were happy doing it, but were you thinking... I got to hook up with a band and be a success in, in, as part of a thing? or No, or I became aware of the, the studio musician career. You know, earlier on, maybe I was 16, 17 years old or something, 18 years old, and I became aware that there was such a thing. Mm -hmm. And it really appealed to me. Because a lot of stuff about rock music and pop music, and even though that's what I knew and that's what I played with my friends... A lot of it I really thought was was bullshit. You know, I, a lot of a lot of it I thought was fashion driven. A lot of it, I, and there were so many posers in it. There still is mm -hmm. in music, but at the time, more than ever, for some reason, in the and, and people have written books about it, I'm sure, and there are sociologists and everything. But for some reason, in the '60s, especially, and the '60s are credited with being, the, you know, uh, probably the '70s as well, and probably right on until uh, today. Music somehow became the center of culture. It became a really all-important thing that everyone thought was cool. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. And whatever else, it, what, what the reasons for that was, I, I don't know. But it became... In other words, people who had... Who in, other, in another time might have had no interest at all in music. Suddenly everyone had to be interested in music and right. talk about music. Everyone had to have a favorite band and... People who are tone deaf, and I'm nothing against people who are tone deaf. I'm like someone who who doesn't, who can't play sports, doesn't watch sports, you know. So, except that, again, in a way, it's a, it's a little bit like that because I live in a world where everyone wants to talk about sports. I'll, I'll get into a cab, 
And the driver says, how about those Yankees? I'm like, who, what? You know, <laughs> It's like that. You're like, I like their theme song. You had to know about <laughs> music. Everyone had, was all about the music. Mm. Uh, and this digression came from what? You, oh, whether right. you wanted to be in a band so or there a I was. Guy. So there I was playing music, not only surrounded by other musicians who played music, but also surrounded by everybody the hell else and their sister and their mother who wanted to be in music or talk about it or be or dress like musicians or be and I hated that I mean I still do I was, was, was kind of like get out of my everybody get the hell out of my field I'm trying to have a little occupation here you know at the time it was, I didn't think of it as an occupation but I thought of it as like a unique interest it's mm-hmm. like why are you all pretending it's your interest too it ain't you know anyway uh so the studio musician thing appealed to me. It's like you didn't have to have some goofy hairdo. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to wear goofy clothes. You didn't have to take drugs if you didn't want to. You know, and you didn't aspire to like sitting in the back of a limousine or partying at four in the morning. Or all you aspired to was playing. Right. You know, listening to music, playing great music, hanging around great musicians. It was all about that. That appealed to me very, very much. So. Uh, and you know that celebrity and stardom is a huge draw for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't for me, and I, I, I can safely say that it isn't for a lot of people who are professional musicians. Orchestras are filled with them, recording studios are or used to be uh, filled with them. Broadway pits are filled with them. There are tons and tons of people who just love music, their right. instrument, the sound of it, the chords, the notes, the melodies, the rhythms, you know, the instruments. And it's got nothing to do with the hair, yeah. the haircuts, and the drugs, and the whatever else, you know. So it seems so. Your session work did take off, and you are you're yeah. you're content in it. Are you are you leaving to tour like you did? You know, when you were at, at school on occasion at this time, or are you not so much because it, as it became lucrative, um, it was hard. Uh, it, let's just say it, it was lucrative. It, the, mm-hmm. the session work became. Uh, abundant it paid well and it would have been hard for someone to uh, you know lure a session player away from that it, it would be expensive and the, the handful of times that I have toured were high profile things uh, for you know for, for the right. kind of money you you don't really see anymore you know yeah uh, and that's that that's why it's like well what would it take to make me stop doing sessions and, and plus you got to figure uh, to leave town to do a tour, you'd always think like, all right, well, I'm going to come back after three months' absence. It's going to take me about six weeks to like get remind people. And other people will have filled my spot, right. filled my chair, you know. Yeah. So it's like that. So it's it, 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 it was an expensive proposition to Okay. You know. Any notable recordings in that of that time? That I did? Yeah. Uh, well, I could, I could point out a couple, but I, I got a really point out that the bulk of the work that I did and that most of the recording musicians did in my time, which begins late 70s, early 80s predominantly, was commercials. Okay. was just the recording sessions Mm -hmm. for, uh, you can call them jingles, but I I actually separate what's a jingle compared to like an underscore or something like that where it's not necessarily a song about the product, but you know, it might just be an orchestra playing like a film score. Um, so a lot of it was a lot of it was that, uh, the the vast majority of it was that. But okay. nonetheless, I would do a handful of records here and there. And yeah, I played on uh, an Eric Clapton album and Aretha Franklin 
record here and there, and a, you know, I played. I think I played on the Wind Beneath My Wings, Bette Midler, and you know, oh, wow. a couple of things. Yeah, very cool. What What were your at this point? What's your What was your goal? Like just to sustain what you're doing, or did you already have very good question? Because very, and... very good question. Because as I was doing the session work, it became uh, it was starting to burn me out a little bit. And one of the things that, if you think about it, a session player is going to deal with is that you show up and whatever it is they're asking you to play, whatever the music they put in front of you, if, if they are putting you know, printed mm-hmm. music in front of you, or, or, or if not, there's a recording artist who's like teaching you a song, singing it to you. Anyway, whatever music they're asked to play, well, that's what you're going to play, and that's what you're going to spend the next few hours with, or an hour or two, or whatever, or spend a day and a half with, whatever. And that wasn't always good. And I would go so far as to say that much of the time it was not at all good, especially in the advertising world. Mm-hmm. You know, big uh, is attrition the right word? But there's a very large, large amount of music that gets thrown away. It's like you're bidding, you're bidding, you're submitting. Right, right. So people are throwing all kinds of stuff against the wall, um, and a lot of it just sucked. And I grew tired of playing music that sucked. It became unsatisfying for me. And I grew tired of a lot of other things too. Right. About it. just really just working like 12 hours a day or whatever. <laughs> but uh, so, yes, what I aspired to was to deal with better music, A, but also I wanted to climb the career ladder. And there was any time that I was back there playing keyboards, someone else was in the front of the room. He was the producer, the arranger, mm-hmm. the writer. So, yes, I, I, I went on to become the arranger composer, the producer. What were some of those stepping stones that got you there? This, uh, the way that that would happen is that I had good work, working relationships with the people that I was playing for, playing on sessions for. And they would say, uh, hey, uh, you want to take a stab at this? You know, I, I was doing a lot of synthesizer playing. And in the 80s, playing synthesizer was, first of all, it was just one of those kind of fashionable things that everyone thought they had to have a synthesizer player at their session. Yeah. Whether or not they had the slightest idea why <laughs> or if, or they just, it's just, we better book a synthesizer player, which was actually great for me, right place, right time. I was able to do a ton of work and, and, and make a ton of money. But, but, uh, but what it really meant is that, unlike the clarinet player who sat down and read the clarinet part, or the guitar player who sat down and did what guitar players always do, which is either play some chords or play some solo thing or play some, you know, like there's a finite vocabulary. of The synthesizer could kind of do, at least hypothetically, anything. Mm-hmm. So it became a catch-all where uh, I would come in after some of the other musicians had left and, uh, and they'd say, well, Rob, what are you hearing? What are you hearing? What, are you, what could you add to this? Or how could you... And then the worst of it was they'd say, yeah... This is supposed to be kind of whimsical, but it's just not whimsical. You know, or this is supposed to be kind of serious, but it's not. Se- or this is supposed to be kind of bluesy, but it's not bluesy just yet. What could you do to this? So sometimes it was a challenge and fun because you could actually affect the change. Sometimes it was just a hopeless cause, and you were just like the bearer of bad news. It's like, <laughs> sorry, I'm just a synth guy. Yeah. You wrote a you wrote something that's never ever ever going to be whimsical, and I'm not going to turn it into something that is today. You know. Anyway, the point is, I had relationships with people who increasingly, they had less and less ready when I got there, so that it, more and more I was showing up and kind of creating a lot of stuff on the spot. Right. 
and and so it did it did in a way evolve to people who trusted me to so eventually they would just say well why not well Robbie knows how to do this let's let him do it so that's how it started a few people started asking me to write and arrange things okay uh, Arif Martin celebrated legendary record producer uh, I actually met his son but cut to and, his, and I did work with his son and his son must have told his dad I met this new keyboard guy or new to him or new to them and then Arif Martin calls me and I was like this is a huge 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 thing for me Arif Martin legendary you know big time producer doing mm-hmm. all the greatest stuff and he says yeah Joe uh, Joe told me about you and uh, I'd like, like you to do something for me uh, do you do a lot of arranging and I said and I you know stammered I'm sure I said well, well, not, uh, uh, no not really and he says great I'd like you to arrange this for me <laughs> you know it was like that kind of thing just dive into the pool sort of a lot of that kind yeah. of stuff happened I remember people saying and that's so why I started with him and then I did a ton of arranging for him and done a ton of production you know playing and all kinds of stuff for him uh, nice years long relationship um, I remember someone saying like yeah well you know you've been doing a lot of nice keyboard stuff for us but we're gonna we need a live orchestra uh, next Wednesday and you could probably like write you know orchestrate for them and I'm like well, I, this is great. See you Wednesday. You know, same yeah, thing. I, I've, I've heard that. I've heard the answer before from a, an interview like this to be like, yes. Yeah. And then they're like, and then I had to go figure out how That's to right. Do it. That's right. Well, it's, it's that. It's like sometimes I would lie and sometimes I would just like try not to lie. And, but either, either way, or they'd say like, so you've conducted a 40-piece orchestra before, haven't you? And I'd be like... No, yeah, yeah, no, or yeah, maybe, maybe not four, <laughs> right, right. maybe not, uh, three, you know, <laughs> great, see you Wednesday. So, in the beginning, it was a lot of that, you know. So, in terms of, um, you know, playing, playing piano, synth programming, arranging, producing, some of the um, artists you have mentioned are, you, you mentioned Clapton, Jewel, uh, Barbara Streisand, yeah. I mean, Whitney Houston, I mean, these, Billy Joel, these are, Mega stars, Aretha Franklin, the mm-hmm. Bee Gees. Um, any particular stories come out of any one of those artists? Well, I have a favorite line, I think, which is that Aretha Franklin, her, I guess, contractor or someone who's, who's helping her round up musicians, called out of the blue. And again, this is someone who I, Sephora Herman was her name, and and uh, I'd heard of her, and I knew that she was someone who contracts musicians for R&B people. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the biggest like black acts and stuff. Um, there was another one since, like, wow, someday maybe Sephra Herman will call me up on the phone, and she did. And she said, "Well, would you like to work with uh, the Queen?" You know, they didn't even refer to her by name. <laughs> you know, in Detroit next week, and. Uh, and you know it's like one of those things you hold the phone you jump up and down you do like a dance and you go like oh yes I think I'm free you know (laughs) and um, so cut to a week later and I walk in there and she's got her and this is Aretha producing a few cuts on on her own on the album that was Sweet Cadillac Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves Who's Zooming Who Was the Name of the Album Right So that was right. a big, that was the big album. album For her Yeah And um, and she f- produced A few tracks on her own And she had uh, Luther Vandross's band At the time Mostly And then she was Augmenting it With um, Steve Kahn Great Legendary New York guitar player Who I don't even think I 
knew him at that time, so I was thrilled. To, he, she, she flew me and Steve Kahn over from New York to Detroit. So the whole thing, you know, very cloud nine kind of thing for me. It's like, wow, she wants Steve Kahn and me to come over from New York, even though she has this great band in Detroit, you know. And uh, we go over there, and uh, they run down the first thing. It's great. Matt Adderley Jr. was the arranger. He's playing piano. I was playing synthesizer. And uh, it just sounds incredible. feels great. We do maybe a second take, you know, because maybe someone made a mistake, a miscue somewhere Mm -hmm. in the first, you know, something. We do a second take. Not uncommon to do 20 takes, by the way, but in this case. And uh, Ms. Franklin comes out out of the booth, and she just says... Completely deadpan, she says, "Well, it, it don't got to be funkier than that." <laughs> that's a that's a quote you got to take with you and uh, use often. And, I love and, that in the right place. And I thought about it, it's like, <laughs> who else could possibly be sort of qualified to say? You have to be Aretha Franklin or James Brown or maybe Prince. Or how many people could say that? Yeah, could just like just with with total you know confidence like. It don't have to be any funkier than that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, one band I want to cherry pick out because they don't seem to genre-wise mm. they didn't seem to fit, but Smashing Pumpkins. Well, okay. So Smashing Pumpkins, uh, you know, technically I put that name in there because I thought it was interesting that I could put that name in there and because genre-wise, it, you know, it's <laughs> like you said, it's, it's an eye-catcher. No, all it was, they, they were making a Christmas record. And on the occasion of the Christmas record, they were beefing up their own uh, sound with an orchestra. Okay. And Arif Martin, my producer friend, passed away a few years ago, uh, uh, was the, might have been the producer of this particular track on, on this Christmas, or the, that album. Or maybe it was a contribution to a Christmas re- or compilation right. or something. Yeah. But anyway, but he was, the, and he was the arranger of the, the orchestra, and he had me in there playing piano. So that's all that was. It's not like I was a member of Smashing Pumpkins or, you know, just right. on the day I mean, they had an orchestra in there, I was an orchestra member. <laughs> um, whether it's Smashing Pumpkins or, you know, these other artists I named, how often are they, well, I guess it does does particular, like Smashing Pumpkins, would they weigh in at all, like when you were there, or was that kind of your, you know, they were kind of done with their part, you were doing your part? No, they were there. Billy, was it Billy Corbin, Billy Corbin. Corbin, yeah. Corgi. Yeah, they were there. He was there. Met him. It was very, very nice. And yeah, they did weigh in. But they also, uh, again, Reef Martin, very, very respected figure. Right. You know, from way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, older guy. He was, he, was, he was quite a bit older than I was. And um, uh, so they was tr- they were very deferential towards him and very like honored to like have him conducting it. And they, and they were also honored to like see a bunch of like. Uh, it's funny. Non-orchestral musicians, non-classical musicians. Have, are often like in awe. You hear about Charlie Parker doing, you know, Bird with Strings, and and of course now we know that Bird is in that very rarefied thing. With like I mentioned Mozart, you know, where this, mm-hmm. like, but but even he, just in the presence of a bunch of guys with fiddles and cellos and stuff, was like completely awestruck yeah. and dumbfounded, and you know, <laughs> like humbled. He didn't have to be. He was a thousand times better than any of they were. Than, than they, but but anyway. Yeah. So that's that's the way these guys were. It was like, holy shit, we're in a room with an orchestra, with a Reef <laughs> Martin, and you know. So they were just very humble and deferential and stuff. Yeah. But they, yeah, I think if they, they weighed in, if they wanted to, sure. Um, 
So from there, how do you segue into uh, being music director for you know some very seminal events? Well, uh, you know, with time, you just you pick up uh, you just sort of pick up a little gravitas, you know. Um, how do you segue into sitting here and having a guy who does a podcast want to know about your life? And it's like, why my life? You know, but 20 years ago, I, the guy wouldn't be asking me, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's that it's just, it's so, so that when people start putting together a short list of who could do this, well, who's been on a thousand stages or a thousand recording studios or a thousand, you know what I mean? The, mm -hmm. the name that's known to all the other musicians and all the. And and so after a couple of decades, you just, uh, I mean, it's like your six degrees of separation start to be like this guy. I did this with him. Yeah, that's right. You this. just become known now to people. That, you know, yeah, that's right. Now that's he's right. a person in power that can hire. Here. That's exactly right. That's right. A, so it's it's a lot of things like that. Uh, you know, maybe you're in the house band for a couple of things, but then the director of the whole event spots you in there and comes to realize that he's seen you there three or four times and, right. you know, or whatever, you know, like which, bring, which brings up a good point. I guess I would skip that, but you were house, you were house band for, you know, like Grammy awards and Kennedy center honors and the Tony's Pavarotti and, and friends five years running, you know, and you even sub for Paul Schaefer at times in the Latin <laughs> band or, or how did that? I did. Uh, that happened two times. But I also, but again, before it happened that way, I was just someone who played with the band uh, maybe 30 or so times. And uh, what happened was when, when Paul Schaefer and that band moved, for, when the Letterman Show moved from NBC to CBS, they expanded the, uh, the band to include a couple of horn players. They took on... Uh, they actually changed some personnel. I think Hiram Bullock, the guitar player, he was no longer there. Sid McGinnis. But anyway, the point is a few things changed. And um, uh, and I guess maybe just their concept for the show and maybe the budgeting for the, the music uh, might have changed too so that Paul just had some more latitude to use more musicians. So he had more musicians in the band, but he also more frequently brought in outside musicians. Mm -hmm. So if he had... A, so he would bring in outside musicians based on who the musical guest was going to be on the show. And if he had a musical guest come on the show and he listened to the record, and he said, oh, well, there's like a lot of keyboard parts on this. Or there's some strings or something like that. Right. And so he'd beef up the horn section or he'd get some string players. So I was on there a lot, just augmenting the band, just being an extra keyboard, you know. Or when Paul was conducting a, like a string orchestra or something, I'd play piano while Paul's just out conducting so I was on there a lot, and again, known to Paul, trusted by Paul, known to the people at the show a little bit, you know. It was Paul who brought me in. I, right. I, I wouldn't say that someone else at the show would have called. But the point is, you know, it just becomes a familiar, you become a familiar face and a, a trusted, uh, you know, entity on some level, you know. Okay. Um, but I will say that my first time subbing for Paul, <laughs> extremely embarrassing. And I blame only myself. Dave was being Dave. And I loved it. I'm a huge fan. Always was, still am, you know. Um, and I was being, I guess, perfect subject matter for Dave. You know, <laughs> I was a deer in the headlights. I was not a good, I never was, still am not a good 
on-camera person, a good talker, as you and now maybe your listeners, uh, you know, uh, not at all comfortable with the with the attention. And I was nervous enough just fulfilling, the, just sitting in Paul's position there. And before before the show, the day maybe the day before the show or whatever, he had given me a rundown of when you do the top ten list, you press this button, you do this, you play that. Uh, when this happens, you play this, you play... So I had this long list of stuff, and then I had all the sheet music around me, and I had all this stuff in my headset. Now, I didn't have to conduct the band. Okay. You know, uh, I think that, that first time, Will Lee, the bass player, conducted mm-hmm. the band, because, again, he had done it. He had done the show a thousand times, thousands of times. Uh, but even so, I was nervous enough just being a guy handling the keyboards, you know, just trying to do what Paul does at the keyboards. Um, and... Dave wanted to kind of chit-chat with me a little bit. And I totally did not rise to the occasion. (laughs) And I was wearing, I tried to, I think I selected some shirt that I had gotten a couple years earlier in Tokyo and it had like some big like picture of I don't know what on the sleeve and it was like a kind of a puffy shirt. I gotta say, it was, the whole thing was incredibly embarrassing and I, I, I just pray that no one ever finds it on the internet. I never, I've looked for it. And I never managed to. But did Dave, did he seize upon it? I mean, did he... A big time. Did, you know, rib you? So, and... yes. Yes. It started with like, hey, and we have Robbie Condor here, Paul Schaefer's out, and uh, we got, you know, and then, you know, it was nice enough. And I was just like, you know, like I just <laughs> stared. Deer in the head, like maybe I like waved or something. It was like, hi, Dave, or something, you know. And he's like, hey, well, how come you didn't come by earlier? Just come by and say hello, and, you know, and say, you know, and like... I didn't say anything. I was just like, don't talk to me. Don't look, you know. Dear, I'm telling you, totally not ready for prime time. Cut to a little bit later in the show. And Paul, being the musical director and having a very important role in the show, has all these little, you know, five inch, seven and nine inch TV monitors. Three or four of them scattered around. So wherever he is on his keyboards... He's got that. He's, you know, he's an important part of the show. He's got to know what's going on. And so, and I'm looking at my list. What's coming up next? We're about to cut to commercial. What's the next bumper music, you know? And I'm looking and I'm looking, I got my pencil and I'm like making a little note and I'm pushing a button on a synthesizer, pulling a drawbar on a Hammond organ, something. And busy, busy, busy. And then I see in these monitors, a couple of one on either side of the Hammond organ, close up of me doing all this. <laughs> And I look up, it was like, I'm telling you, it was like the, the, the Bunks Money cards, you know, yeah, I look up and I see like two huge TV cameras, like what looked like inches from my face. It might have been two feet from my face, but it wasn't much more, you know, but it, they were just like huge and right on me and all the monitors were my face filling the screen. And again, deer in the headlights. Uh, so that was my first time. Subbing. Oh, wait a minute. So it was just Sandra Bullock was on the show. I was just going to ask what were the, who were the guests. Yeah, she was. Who were the musical guests? The musical guest was Glenn, not Glenn Burtnick. Uh, I'm spacing on the name. But I, there were people I knew, actually knew them and chatted with them on a break. Uh, i trying to remember who it was. But... Um, Yeah, at one point, oh yeah, so Letterman sort of kept, became a riff, he kept referring to me as this guy, 
He says, well, you know, we were doing this, but then we got this guy. And they started making fun of my shirt. You know? <laughs> it, was, it just got worse and worse and worse. And then I didn't even go to, I was, I didn't even show up at JSM the next day. You know, where I'd ordinarily just go and maybe write something or not or whatever or play on right. people's stuff. And I'm home and I'm sitting on my deck with a tumbler like this, a big glass of vodka. And I'm not a drinker. I don't drink at home. But I was like really just feeling like just, you know. And I'm like drinking on my deck in the middle of the day. It was a beautiful day. It was like October or something, September. And I get a call. It's Paul Shaver. He says, it's the following day now. He says, yeah, you took a little ribbon on the show. And I said, I know, I know. He says, well, no, no, no. I mean, tonight's show. They tape it at 5.30. He's calling me now at 6.30, 7 okay. p.m. Gonna... He says, you took a little ribbon on the show. Uh, and he says, no, tonight's show. I said, what do you mean tonight's show? I was there yesterday. He says, yeah, but they kind of dredged out some footage and <laughs> had a little fun with it today, too. Oh, no. <laughs> so I became a... So I said, Paul, this can't become like... I can't become a top ten list now. I can't become like an, a, a running character on the show. <laughs> So, and then I got a really nice letter of apologies from Dave. Although I really should have sent him a letter of apology because, you know, he was just... Well, it's all, I mean, it's he all was, natural. He know? was doing what he does. And, and he, you know, in, in all honesty, he could play off that. And he did play off he that. He did. So, oh, there, no. you know, you, you gave him more to work with than yes, you gave I, him less to work that's with. That's true. That's true. That's true. But, you know, so for me, it's like one of those things I really hope never surfaces on the internet. <laughs> well, that's funny. Uh, so you got, how many times you did that? Well, then I did it or? again about 10 years later. Okay. Uh, Paul, uh, yeah, but this was different. This was, oh, you know what it was? Letterman wasn't there. So Paul was hosting the show. Oh, funny. Paul was hosting the show. That's what happened. And he says, Letterman was having his... I think he yes. was, was he was either he was having a kid or he was or he was he had his it was hard iPad. Then. I think he was having the kid. So Paul was hard. He says, Would you mind filling in for me? Dave won't even be there. And now you know it's not like I had to beef with Dave yeah, yeah. or anything, but you know, because I and I've been on the show many, many times since as well, you know, just augmenting the band. So, yeah, so I did it again. with, uh, And then, of course, Paul was super nice to me and made it easy. And I was a little bit more on my toes in terms of like, okay, schmuck, <laughs> there might be a microphone and a camera. Don't be an idiot. You're not up there to play keyboards. You know, right. again, what I what we talked about a while ago about being a session musician. It's like, I didn't want to be. Yeah, that's. I just wanted to play. Not exactly just, what you signed up for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to, you know, I like the, the notes, the instruments, the chords, the rhythms, you know. So, yeah. Not the showbiz. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, uh, what we touched upon earlier in the show, which I, you know, it, it's very curious, but it, the logistics of being a musical director, mm. I and mean, that just seems like, like how, you know, uh, I'm trying to think you had the, you know, the Carol King, you know, two of those events, how much, how far out do you have to start work for that? Well, it was a, uh, how match? much time do we start work and how much time do we have to, two different questions because, uh, in with the case of the uh, person of the year, we probably started, I don't know, six weeks out. But no one really, things didn't really get busy until about a week and a half out, two weeks out, let's mm -hmm. say. Um, because it takes a long time for things to get settled down. First, first, you're constantly hearing about, we're asking this person, we're asking that person. So you do have a 
a long list that you make into a short list that you make into that's a right. And I'm not I'm not responsible for trying to corral the talent. The, the, the powers that be do that. Um, it's not my job to, to see if I can get, you know, Elton John to... Do you in. suggest at all or say something like, can. Oh, this I, might be a I good... I can, yeah, I can, but that's that's not even the thing. That world, at least in terms of those couple of things that I did, very much uh, celebrity-driven. At least that kind of thing. I've been musical director on much more smaller, local, you know, you're alluding to a couple of very high-profile things. Um, on a more local thing... Uh, you know, benefit, and it's mostly going to be about like my friends and people we know, and you know, mm-hmm. that's different. Then, yeah, you are reaching out to whoever you know, and they're not the biggest names. You're not reaching out to Billy Joel, you know. But um, in a situation where you are, um, that's very much governed by uh, the celebrity world and, and their agents and their managers and, and the tie-ins with, with I don't know what business relationships and. Mm-hmm. It's Who's your boss? The producer of the event? Well, uh, the, yeah. Like, for example, again, Music Cares. So there was someone who was with the Music Cares organization, and she was, uh, a, you know, Grammy and Music Cares higher up, mm-hmm. who was very much uh, in charge of things. But they hired a production company. Product, and not unlike in the commercial world, where, right. the where they, they you just give them this huge budget, and then they oversee, and then they, you know, then they hire a lot of different people. So I was also working for the product, not working for directly, but but very much working with and answering to the production company. So mm-hmm. in that case, for example, I was working with this woman at uh, Music Cares, but also uh, the guy at I don't remember the name of the company, but a great big product, and they do huge events and huge television specials and. Uh, so yeah, and I was talking to both of them on the phone, and some often three-way conferences and stuff. And, and is it um, is it tough, you know, playing psychiatrist if you if if need be to these different egos and you know? Yeah, it whether is. Whether everyone's on the same, I mean, it, it sounds like you get a good mix of like up-and-coming artist, established artist, correct. legend, correct, you correct, know. and and. Um, Again, depending on at what level you're doing it, on a very, very high level like that one, uh, there are a lot of buffers. There are a lot of people in between. Where So that I don't, for example, have to negotiate when, when Lady Gaga right, says, right. I need the white piano, I can step back and say, you know what, that I'm not going to be... I, I'm neither able to get that for you or tell you you can't have it. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be my issue really at all. Um, or money or something like that. On a smaller level, sure, you're right down to negotiating dollars and cents with people or telling them you'll send them a car to pick them up and then maybe I'm even the guy that has to call the car and send it and, you know. So it really runs the gamut, Mm -hmm. you know. Did you, uh, do you enjoy that? Did you enjoy, I mean, do you enjoy, you know, getting the musical director, you know, jobs that you've done? Um. Has that become too too many uh, plates in the air? You know, yeah, it's... Do I enjoy it? Well, I certainly enjoy it when it's done. It's exhilarating when it finally comes to be the night of and then, of course, everything has been resolved and now you just have to get through actually playing the show. Uh, that's 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 very enjoyable, very exhilarating. I can't honestly say I enjoy it. Um, it's a lot of hats to wear that I haven't really necessarily signed on for. Some people thrive on that. I mean, some people are... Uh, you know, very creative and very resourceful, and mm-hmm. that they're all about managing things and 
coordinating things. Right. I would safely say I'm not at all about any of that stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of do it. I don't know if I do it as well as anyone else, better than anyone else, worse than anyone, you know. It's just I do it if I have to. But you know, again, you know, give me a piano, I'll sit down and play it. You know. Mm-hmm. And is you know going to these you know the the more widely known one. These are televised too. At some at some some sometimes these things are like yeah. Are I they... haven't done a lot of these, by the way. You know, okay. but, yeah. I played in house bands for a lot of these things. Okay, that are televised. Are the televised ones? Are they? Do they get the? Are they edited for television? Like, can you do a number twice, or is it? Does it come off like a concert? Like, it depends. Is, I've, no, I've, well, I've done again, not as a musical director, but but uh, the, the vast majority of my experience on these large events is just as a player in the house band, and it does uh, run the gamut. To both of those things, sometimes uh, it's shot. So, for example, we did Aretha Franklin and Friends, mm-hmm. great event. Elton John, Smokey Robinson, Rod Stewart, and all these people, and Aretha, and they're all doing duets with Aretha and stuff, and then doing their own numbers. And that was like something that became, I think, a one-hour TV special. We probably spent four hours the night we taped it, let alone the day right. or two putting it together, production-wise, and rehearsing mm-hmm. it and everything else. So that's like that where you stop and you're, you know, you're reloading the camera. Of course, these days it's not about reloading the camera. It's still about relighting something or moving the cameras or moving a set or something. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. Uh, something like uh, Music Cares that we've been talking about with uh, Steve Tyler and, and all these people and Lady Gaga. Um, that was just a live event. There were people like banquet style, you know, like the Grammys or right. something. So... Uh, I don't recall taking extra time in between. Now they might they might have created a DVD after it wasn't uh, televised live. They might have created the DVD after that or or P- PBS special or something right. that might have been edited down, just tighten it up. But it was it was done live. It was not asking begging the audience's patience while we spend half hour, you know, moving lights around or something. Mm-hmm. So, um, all right. Well, you've. You've obviously achieved a lot. You've got your hands in a lot of different things. What What would you like to be doing this year, next year, the next five years? Well, I'm not, certainly not as active in uh, most of these areas as I have been. And I don't anticipate going back to being, I mean, a lot, a lot of it has to do with where I'm at in terms of just my own life, but also a lot of it has to do with what's happened to the music business, you know. Mm-hmm. In, in the various music businesses, what's happened to the ad business, what's happened to recording. For example, there are no recording studios, very few yeah. recording studios in New York, so uh, you can't be a studio musician full-time anyway. Um, for me, uh, I like playing live. I play some rock and roll with my friends, some other kinds of music. I, uh, I might be playing a little bit more jazz mm-hmm. um, coming up. I might be doing some more teaching uh, coming up. Um... I'm writing some library music. Library music is like you probably don't. That becomes stock. Yeah, it's like what stock photography is. So instead yeah. of getting called with a particular picture and saying here score this, you just they just people just compile libraries of music. Mm-hmm. Not me, but companies that do this that make it available. For yeah. them. and then so they'll reach out to someone like me and say we need a lot of music for this certain kind of reality show or this certain kind of dramatic thing or this certain kind of documentary and they give you some parameters of the style and you just submit music. Mm-hmm. 
And then if and when they use it, you get paid. And if and when they don't, you don't. So, um, But it's a peaceful way to work yeah. as opposed to the, the, the ad client and, and all that. You know. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, before I get to the final five, I want to cherry pick a couple, couple more names. Yeah. Um, 50 Cent. Well, 50 Cent, okay. Uh, I played with him twice on a Letterman show. On a Letterman, okay. Yeah. So, and what's really interesting, I think, is that Paul Schaefer, who's a great musician as well as a, a great musical director in, in every sense of the, in terms of like just being able to work with the people, the, 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 the artists and the egos and all that. Um, and, and I think one of the things that makes him great, apart from the fact that he's completely skilled and competent and talented and gifted and all that great stuff, apart from all that is he's a huge fan. He's a huge, huge fan in the way that I and most people I know, professional musicians I know, are not. He's a he's so like he'll actually go up to as jaded as he might be from having done everything he's done, he'll actually be asking people for autographs or you know what I mean. He's a huge fan, and I, I mean, don't quote me. I mean, is he literally asking for autographs? I don't know, but I but you just know I just yeah. know that he's a tremendous fan. He took it upon himself saying, "Well, we're going to have a hip hop artist on. We're going to and then we're going to recreate the sounds of this." hip-hop record live, live. with a oh, live cool. band. That's very cool. Now, these records were not made with live bands. They weren't <laughs> even made with one live musician. It's all computer bleeps and bloops, and even the drums are computer... So he'd have Anton Fig, the drummer up there, kind of supplementing his drum kit with some electronic little things. And and uh, so he'd have me there recreating a lot of the synth stuff. That's you cool. know, That sounds like a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Like it, Very like ambitious in a way. A, an interesting challenge. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, did this, was that the same experience with Curtis Blow? No. Curtis Blow is, is interesting in a very different way, which is that this is like 1980 or 81 or something like that. And Curtis Blow, did we even... Were we even aware that it was hip-hop at that time? There was, there was break, break beats, break right. dancing and break beats. Uh, you had the Sugar Hill Gang, you had Curtis Blow, and his records were done live with, you know, just some Jewish guys playing drums and bass. And I was playing a Fender Rhodes electric piano. And it wasn't synths. It wasn't any. It was just guys playing. Instruments. So that was a that was just a straight session. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we did yeah. Glad I asked that. It's a good one. <laughs> Um, well, I will say, well, I, I don't know how inside, uh, you, how interested you might be or how or your listeners, but there's a guy by the name of Jimmy Brailauer who went on to become a very, uh, you know, great record producer. Um, but through the 80s and 90s, he was the preeminent drum programmer. When everything, when like Madonna and all the things were done with electronic drums, mm -hmm. he was really the guy who spearheaded that and really, really uh, took, and, and it's his name on like, Dozens and dozens and dozens of huge records, and um, but before he did that, he was playing real drums on a Curtis Blow record. That's so funny. he was one of our, you know. Well, that'll lead me to, which I just added, the Bee Gees. Was the Bee Gees earlier in your career or later in your career? The Bee Gees were 1986, and remember I told you about meeting uh, the great Arif Martin. Mm -hmm. um, one of the first things I did with him was uh, the Bee Gees. Okay. Uh, and we did, I'm just trying to think, did we start by doing a session or two in New York? We, 
I know we did both uh, sessions in New York and in Florida. I'm just trying to remember where we started. But Arif and I went down to Miami, spent like a week or two uh, staying down there and working with the Gibbs at their own studio. I mean, full, right. full, beautiful studio in Miami. Middle ear, middle ear or Middle Earth music? Middle ear, I think. Uh, and um, they're great. Super, super nice guys. I bet. Yeah. I was curious, coming off the conversation of you know the early um, rap artists, is just disco. A lot of the disco, and I don't know if they, I mean, did they use any, were, were they disco analog instruments in the 70s, playing the drums and the... Absolutely, they did. Yeah, the, the other technology but, wasn't really there yet. Because when I hear that on the radio, I'm like, that's somebody is locked in. You know, yes, it is, stuff. and not only that, but some like for five minutes long and playing a very monotonous beat. Yeah, that was a little. I didn't do a lot of disco stuff. Um, I might have done a little, and I was starting to do studio stuff while maybe at the tail end of the disco stuff, or mm-hmm. maybe while disco stuff was being done. But I wasn't in the, you know, in like let's say nineteen seventy six, seventy seven. I might have been doing sessions with like local folky mm-hmm. singer songwriter people and things like that, doing their demos. You know, there was a real almost like farm leagues of like yeah. where you could there were small studios that weren't that expensive and people like me that would do a session for thirty five dollars happily actually because I so desperately wanted to break into that. So um if there were disco sessions going on at that time, they were being done you know, in the big studios with the big boys. Right. And I was neither at that time. You're working I away. Working, I was working in the junior studios with the junior, you know, with the farm farm teams. Okay. Uh, the boss, Springsteen. No contact with him whatsoever. No? None. It's on your list. Is it? Yeah. I was at a Carnegie... Okay, not whatsoever. I was at a <laughs> Carnegie Hall... No, house band. There was a lot of things... Okay, so the list that's on sort of on the website, the long, long, long list. Yeah, that's what I'm. I talking. was in a lot of house band uh, scenarios, where you're there. There's a house band, a rhythm section, and then maybe there's right. an orchestra, and then it's like one after the other. Artist comes, comes, and gets up on the stage, right. and um, so in that capacity, I've, there's a ton of people that I played with. Yes, he was one of the people. That came out and did a song, and it's quite possible that I was playing keyboards, <laughs> or, or more than possible, I probably was in fact playing keyboards while he was up in front of the stage, strumming his guitar and singing. Okay, that probably did happen, but uh, like maybe we weren't introduced, okay. like maybe I didn't never met him, spoke <laughs> with him. You know, that's what I. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. That's that's fair to say. Last one, Eddie Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen, there was a tribute to Les Paul okay. TV special. I remember reading about that? Yeah. Um, 87, I would say, if I had to guess. Um, and again, house band, but, but except this was a, a little bit of a high profile house band, so I was very, felt very uh, flattered to be in it. It had New York, it had Rick Murata, who was a kind of a legendary session drummer, not one that I had played with much. Because he was already like a West Coast guy. Mm-hmm. But I knew who he was. Hugh McCracken, David Spinoza were the guitar players. Uh, because all the people in the special were kind of famous guitar players who were going to be tributing yeah. Les Paul. And Les Paul himself was there playing. Uh, so the, the fact so they we had to get two 
they had to get two great guitar players just to be in the house band. That was uh, Tony Levin was the bass player. I mean, it was these spectacular kind of musicians. And I was there playing keyboards. It wasn't that much keyboard playing. It wasn't much about keyboards, but <laughs> they needed a keyboard player, and there I was. So I was a fly on the wall, really pleased to be there. And Eddie Van Halen was one of the guitar players. And we did meet and were and rehearse together and talk and whatever, and he was teaching me a part. He wanted me to play and whatever. So that was more of an experience than, than okay. the Bruce Springsteen one. And I will say that at that time, and maybe to this day, I don't think I've ever heard a more amazing guitar tone. Just, I mean, it was loud. Mm-hmm. I wasn't especially into loud. But just the beefiest, hugest guitar sound I ever heard in my life. And he had, I mean, like, I don't know what kind of combination of amplifiers he had going. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. I'm sure the, the MD of that heard from his people that he needs this and it's got to be this. And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, they probably just, he just brought everything he, he, he uses, you know. All right, we'll, uh, like I said, we'll wind things down with the, the final five questions that everybody gets. The first question is, um, what's your most prized musical-related possession? As I've recently described, it's the house is on fire. What are you grabbing and taking well, with that's you? That's interesting. That's a very good question. For the, for the studio. <laughs> I'm a whole lot less sentimental than most people. I haven't had my picture taken with anybody. I haven't. I got rid of all my vinyl records that I had played on. I, I don't even know if I have CDs of everything I've played on. So yeah, I'm not. I haven't really collected much. Uh, I have a Steinway that I love. I'm not grabbing that if the house is on fire. Uh, Push that out. Um, Has anybody given you anything? A tchotchke or a you know a tuning key from you know your idol or. I wish I had a more immediate answer to that. I have, you see these pictures on the walls here of like me playing at the White House with, you know, with, with, the, with the people that I played with, with the, the other musicians and uh, things like that. Um, but, you know, I can get another copy of those things online <laughs> somewhere, you know. Uh, I don't know that I have anything like that. I have okay. a bunch of, you know, the laminates that you get when you, the backstage pass, that, you mm-hmm. know, the, the security clearance. I have a whole wad of those sitting around like on the bathroom sink downstairs next to my studio. <laughs> I didn't, it hadn't occurred to me that that's a musical, but I suppose I've had that stuff for years. I don't really have a great answer for that. Okay, so that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Uh, second question, this is a Rockonomics question. If I were to give you a check for a million dollars to give to one charity, which one charity would you donate it to? I might say AmeriCares only because not too long ago I went looking for, you know, you can see the... Uh, there, there are websites that evaluate charities, mm-hmm. and I America has just came up the winner that day okay. uh, in terms of doing a good job of distributing it to the needy people and, and not having particularly high executive salaries yeah. and things like that, Low efficiency, you know, all okay. that. So, yeah, again, not a very glamorous answer. Okay. That's yeah. good. Yeah. This is where, okay, the next one's with the glamorous answers come in. Uh, what would your walk-up music be to the pearly gates? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> um... Hmm. <laughs> it's funny earlier today John said oh god like, walk well, up right music music to the pearly gates oh my god is it, this supposed to be something that I wrote or what no um, just whatever you want you know I think things are good you're you're heading towards the right direction so what what you know oh my god what do you kind of want to be what the soundtrack question. to that what a question could be any anything anything out there it's either a <laughs> wow <laughs> 
Um, well, it's hard to think about the walk up to the pearly gates without also thinking about you know something as like morose as dying. But um, so with that in mind, I would say the middle movement to Beethoven's uh, uh, Emperor Piano Concerto. I think it's like number five. Okay, it's just particularly like. Is it, up, is it uplifting or is it it's intense? It's slow. Is it's it, slow. It's just a gorgeous, just gorgeous, gorgeous melody that, you know... Uh, good mood piece I, given I'll, the context no, of the I don't scene. Know, I'll almost always cry <laughs> listening to it. It's okay. like that. It's very, just like, just a beautiful melody. Okay. And then the other thing it might be would be one of the many um, recordings, various live recordings that, that you can find on the internet and appeared on some albums too is Richard T, piano player, where the band Stuff, this is some obscure stuff here, the band Stuff from the 70s, they would break down and it would just be Richard T doing his little gospel breakdown with Steve Gadd on drums. Okay. Uh, because when I first heard that, that a little bit later on, in, uh, than, well, a few years later, than the Beatles in 1964, that was the thing that really cemented, because Richard T was a session player, and I thought, Oh my God, that's the guy I want to do what he does and play like that. Which, by the way, never in a million years could I play like that. And nobody can. Every ask any piano player, he'll tell you he wants to play like Richard T, and they, not one of them could do it. Right. That might be. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Flip side of that is what's stuck on repeat in hell. <laughs> what is stuck on repeat in hell? Probably some 80s, you know... Uh, <laughs> so where the synth went wrong. <laughs> yeah, 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 a lot of that, yeah. Oh, okay, I'll tell you what. The Eurythmics, who I otherwise like... What's her name? Uh, that great Annie, singer. Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox did a Christmas record. Winter Wonderland. She did a Winter Wonderland. Most horrible thing I've ever heard. So I would say that. <laughs> okay, I'll have to... Uh... And I like her. So, you know, if she's listening... I'm a fan. And she, she, probably, and, she probably doesn't like it either. But did, and, was we, it, and we played together in Italy with Pavarotti. What, what, <laughs> what was it about the song? Oh, it's just dreadful. It's just I mean, horrible. did they take it to a place that just they never should have? They just took, well, they, well, they should have taken it to, to a place. They kind of did <laughs> nothing with it except they they couldn't figure out what the or whatever. They didn't bother to figure out what the good the real chords were and used like crappy lame ones instead. Okay. And they used crappy sounds and they, I think they I think they did it. While eating lunch with the other hand, you know, kind of <laughs> I'll have to seek that out. Yeah, seek it out. Um, last question is is always difficult for someone like you because you've been around so many great performances. But it's what's your favorite live performance you've witnessed? Hmm. Um, well, I don't know if this is a lifetime thing, but since it's relatively fairly recent in the last year and relatively fresh in my mind, I went to see. Uh, Chris Thiele, Punch Brothers, and Friends. Uh, just a few months ago, maybe five, six months ago. And it was astounding. It was a great concert. It was at the Beacon Theater where the sound is usually horrible. Mostly because stuff is usually too loud there. You'll go to hear Steely Dan, who has legendarily great sound mixers and great, great talented people and great equipment, but it sounds awful at the Beacon Theater. They always play at the Beacon Theater. <laughs> it's just the way it is. The Punch Brothers sounded incredible oh, there. They put up two microphones. That was it. Two microphones, eight, eleven musicians throughout the evening, different people coming and going. And they would just position themselves as needed. They'd mix their vocal blend around these two microphones. It was just incredible. 
Very cool. Incredible. I wonder if it lives on uh, YouTube somewhere. <laughs> Maybe. But I'll tell you, anything, you looked up the Punch Brothers, uh, Chris Dealey, some of the other uh, people that they had, they had just, they're friends, you know, these other people who play mm-hmm. and sing, they were all just brilliant. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, Robbie, I appreciate you giving me your time, taking me to your home, picking me up by the train. Um, thanks very much. Appreciate Thank it. you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Robbie Condor. And an overdue shout-out to Mike Boris, who put me in touch with both Robbie and John Altschiller from last week's podcast. So thank you, Mike. For more information on Robbie, you can visit his website at condormusic.com. That's K-O-N-D-O-R music.com. As always, I ask you to all please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, as well as follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be back next week with a great new episode featuring the drummer of a multi-platinum selling band who's currently on tour, so definitely join us for that. Episode 27 is in the books. Good night, Cleveland. Cleveland.